I mean, I see this barrier all the time. You know, plasticity of human brains decreases as we age. And so where young people are really interested in adopting new technologies and so forth, older people are not. And so when you're dealing with an older workforce, they really don't want a new piece of software or a new process even. And so I think that also is a slow process. So you can have these things be created, but then just adoption stalls. And that's a human factor. It's a biological human factor. At Data Futurology, we love creating events that can help you overcome the challenges that you're facing in your organizations right now. So I wanted to quickly tell you about a free webinar around accelerating MLOps. This is on the 26th of July at 11 a.m. We're going to be sitting with Romina Sharifpour from AWS, and she's going to tell us about how carsales.com.au was able to use their SageMaker platform to improve the creation, deployment, and operationalization of their machine learning models. So come join us for that really exciting webinar. For more details, please check datafuturology.com forward slash events. Thanks so much. Hope to see you there. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers, and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project-focused data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, this is Felipe Flores from Data Futurology. Today, I have a very, very special guest for us. It's Melanie johnston Hollett. I'm so excited to get to pick your brain. Melanie, how are you going today? I'm fantastic, Felipe. How are you? Yeah, so good, so good. I wanted to start by asking you to give us an overview about your background and then tell us about the type of things that you're passionate about and thinking about at the moment. Sure. So at the moment, I'm director of the Curtin Institute for Computation, which is a data science institute. And I'm also director of the Australian Space Data Analysis Facility, which is a facility which helps SMEs and yeah, researchers look at space data. But my actual personal background is in astrophysics. So I'm a professor of astrophysics by training, and I spent 20 years working on uh, international large-scale big data radio astronomy projects. So I've come into data science through a slightly circuitous route. I love it. I love it. So, so good. So good. And um, I'm, um, what I was going to say before is that I'm originally from Chile um, and I grew up in the north of Chile, which is in the Atacama Desert. So the, the driest desert in the world, which um, has like heaps, heaps and heaps of telescopes. Um, at one point, very large telescope, uh, which is very exciting. Um, that I remember going to visit it when I was like in, in high school. So, um, and and I remember hearing about the number of petabytes that they're getting from from the telescopes and and, and having to sort of um, whittle that data down um, to find ways to then uh, be able to to manage it. So I think there is there's um, so much so much overlap between you know the two fields, and it's really exciting. 
Yeah, so first of all, I'm jealous that you've been to the Atacama uh, telescope facilities because so they're they're large optical telescopes and um, the optical astronomy community would argue that they're producing a huge amount of data, but it's nothing in comparison to what we do in radio astronomy. So um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One of the cool things about the telescopes they have in Atacama is they do an enormous amount of um, data generation from system modelling. So they're constantly uh, collecting data on the status of the telescope system in addition to the astronomical data itself. And um, the data that they collect on the actual telescope system is as much as the astronomical um, observation data. So they've got a huge amount of information on the instrument. But even so, uh, in radio astronomy, we produce ridiculous amounts of data. So Next generation radio telescope, which is called the Square Kilometre Array, which is um, just to start construction at the moment in Western Australia and South Africa, is uh, going to produce in combined 160 uh, terabytes of data per second, raw data. So, yeah, 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 it's huge. Um, so the low frequency component does 157 um, terabytes per second. And the other what? one, which is a fish ray. Yeah, it's mad. It's mad. Um <laughs> So how you deal with the data of that size and magnitude and turn it into knowledge rather than just storing data for the sake of storing it is a really interesting problem. Exactly. Um, and Yeah, yeah. So when you say what drives me and what I'm passionate about, I'm really interested in how you extract knowledge out of different data sets for different purposes and the barriers to do that, which are often not technological, but actually human factors, they're human barriers. Yes. So that's what I'm interested in. Yes. So true that it's um, it's often the, um, the 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 change management, the the aligning of incentives, the the convincing and the getting momentum is uh, so often like the biggest barrier in, yep. in technology adoption and and uh, progress of innovation um, in organizations. So that's is that something that, that you see a lot as well? Um, yeah, so what I find is people internalize messages. And they don't really realize why they're internalizing them. And then 20 years down their career, that becomes a barrier to technology adoption. Yes. So I'll, I'll give you an example in the field yes. of, of radio astronomy. So when I was a, a PhD student 20 years ago doing my um, thesis on radio telescopes in Australia, we were using you know big dishes. They were very heavy. You had to drive them and point them at um, whatever you want to point out in the sky. And so the expensive part of the data chain was collecting the data. So you don't want to recollect the data. Storing the data was relatively cheap. And so my PhD supervisor said to me, you know, data are precious. We've got to keep every piece of data. Um, you've got to put it all in an archive because you don't want to go back and reobserve. That's the expensive part. And so anyone who's a radio astronomer of my generation who are now managers globally have internalized this message, but not understood that it was an economic driver. So now when we're looking at this huge telescope, the square kilometer array, where you're getting, you know, 157 <laughs> terabytes of data per second, there's this internalized view of humans that you should keep all the data. But the expensive part for that particular telescope, because it's not um, driven by uh, mechanical steering, it's driven by electronic steering. So timing basically, so it's fixed. And then we just correlate the signals um, depending on where we want to collect data from the sky. Observing is really cheap. Running the telescope is cheap. Storing that amount of data is extremely expensive. Wow. And so, but you run into this situation where rather than say, okay, well, can we throw the data away? You've got this internalized reaction to say, no, we should keep it all. Yeah. And that doesn't really make any sense. If the objects that you're observing change on the timescale of millions of years, you're actually better off 
taking the data, processing it as quickly as possible, throwing it away, and then reobserving. So effectively, you're using the sky as your archive. And as long as the timescale of the objects you're observing is longer than the archive, you know, um, reprocessing time, so how long are you going to go back and reobserve? That's fine. Yeah. But you cannot, it's hard to get people to, to think about it that way because they've internalized this view that data are precious. So it's really interesting to run into those type of situations. So interesting where rules of thumb, um, yeah. like, can catch us out as as the uh, as the technology landscape evolves under our feet. Yeah, um, and I I think it's something that everyone has. Um, everyone has those those heuristics that they that they leverage on uh, often and sometimes in, in times where they shouldn't. And I, I know that that definitely happens happens with me. Like I've, I've um, this year, I've been like on a on a bit of a crusade to understand what are some some rules that I had for myself, um, professional rules where then that then are now no longer valid, and, and yep. I, it's interesting um, uncovering those. And, and but you're seeing that as a, at a systems level, which is yep. even more even more interesting and challenging. Yeah, it's it's really really difficult. And the other thing, of course, is that you know we've had, for example, uh, the ability to work remotely. For 20 years, like when I went to university as an undergraduate, I was told, you know, knowledge workers are going to be distributed across the world. And that didn't happen, not because we didn't have the technology, but because people, managers didn't trust that if you didn't put everybody together in a room and they could go and knock on their door, that they would actually be productive. Whereas productivity is a mindset. Productivity is about, you know, the willingness to do the work and being supplied with the tools that you need. And if you're going to be lazy in your workplace, it doesn't matter if you're on the job or remote, you're still, you're, that's, a, that's an unproductive worker. It's not about location. And it was only that COVID came and forced that change, right? An external force came in and removed that human barrier, that human fear that allowed us to actually work as remotely as we are now, even though we've had that technology for 20 years. So yeah, absolutely. It's you see this at system levels and also at individual levels, and it's a really interesting uh, question to sort of be able to. How do you convince at the system level a whole bunch of people to do what you're doing and review their own biases and heuristics? So yeah, it's a fascinating field. Ah, so interesting. Yes, yes, and I think there, there's um, there's often improvements in, in productivity that get stuck in that same um pattern as well. That it's kind of like yep. this is the way that it's always been done, and we should continue to do that. Yep. Um, a simple one that, that comes to, to, at least in my mind, um, probably too often or surprisingly often is um, keyboards, keyboard layouts. Yeah. And, and um, the fact that we, we have this, this layout that was trying to separate the, the letters that were most often used together uh, or, or that in, in the words are quite close together and those letters want yeah. to be separated in the keyboard. And that that's a keyboard layout that we have now and um, that they're are additional uh, or other alternatives where it's faster for to type and easier for people to do that, um, and there's that that barrier of adoption because we're we're accustomed to doing things the way that that it's been done, even though there's new generations coming in that haven't seen um, what what was there when that layout was designed. Uh, so, yep. At one point, you know, AI will be the way that we interface with computers, and then. Uh, keyboards will be a thing of the past, but I think until then we're stuck with the with the layout that we have. Yeah, it's it's funny these legacy things that kind of um, just perpetuate. I um, 
I am aware of the first women computers in, in astronomy, which happened in the, the 1890s in Harvard. And these were women whose job it was by eye to examine optical plates and actually note down in a ledger where the interesting objects uh, were to be found in their coordinates. And they were then trying to do analytics on those things to sort of improve our understanding of the life cycle of stars and stellar classification. So these are first data scientists. Yeah. And what I find amazing is my first job in astronomy which was, again, um, nearly 20 years ago, it was exactly that. I was given a project at the Anglo-Australian Observatory where I was told to take a hand lens and scan optical plates to look for planetary nebula. And at the time, I was like, surely I can't be doing the work that was being done 100 years ago. But in fact, I was. And to my great embarrassment in some senses, I actually gave people a similar project uh, only four years ago, and that was because we had automated some of the detection processes, but some of that stuff's still really hard, and the easiest way to do it is to still have humans do it. Yeah. Um, and so there's a difference, I think, between the work that humans still have to do because we haven't developed technology that can do some of those hard things. So if you're looking for an object which is really bright and sits above the noise in your image, a computer can do that, like an AI can do that. If you're looking for something which is fuzzy or requires you to apply external context, a human brain is still the way to do to do that. But that's very different to what we're talking about here, which is where you run into this thing that somebody says, oh, it always has to be this way. And I don't want my job to change um, and lose my job. And that's that's human fear rather than, than anything which is constructive. And so that barrier, I think, I think comes up again and again and again. Oh, definitely. And and what, what are some 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 ways that you um that you started to um to use on a recurring basis to to identify that and then start to provide some some structure because because when it's when it's um when it's a heuristic that sometimes people are not conscious of it's um to help to help bring out the awareness you almost have to create some structure for them or, or do you what's what's your what's your process like um i do two things so the first thing is i usually ask people why mm. so in the case of you know my peers who've internalized this view that data are precious and not realize that that's an economic argument that was valid 20 years ago and isn't valid now, potentially, I ask them why they think it's the case. And I try and get them to sort of step back and look at the, the entire system and, and to realize that that was an economic thing and to think about whether or not they can overcome that um, heuristic. The other thing that I try and do with people is I talk about um, what their job is holistically and how AI and um, machine learning can take away the drudgery parts of it and that their, their job isn't going to go away, but it's going to evolve and evolve for the better. Um, so we, we have a good example at the moment. We're, we're currently working on a fish counting algorithm um, in the Curtin Institute for Computation. So the way that fish ecologists understand the health of marine reefs is that they put baited um, stereoscopic uh, cameras under the water. So the fish come they collect the video and then an ecologist sits there and counts the fish by hand. And yeah, we spend $1.4 million a year in this country on highly trained oh. fish ecologists eyeballing videos of fish. And when you do that, that, that's important work for them to understand the ecology of reefs and so forth because the more fish species you have is a great uh, indicator of the health of your reef. But it takes such a long time for humans to do that that you know, if you've got sensitive areas in threat in the marine environment, you've got a six-month delay between collecting the data and getting an outcome. And so, but that's a small part of what a fish ecologist do, it does. Right. So what we've done is we've developed an algorithm um, with machine learning that will actually do that automatically in real time. 
and take that drudgery away. So you talk to people about how what we're helping them do is shorten the path to what their goal is. So whatever their goal is, um, machine learning and technology should help you with that, not necessarily take your job away, but change it for the better. So that's the other process. I love it. I love it. Yes, uh, that's great. I, I always think that, um, you know, um, as, as humans, we are in our jobs, we're problem solvers. And the job is there to solve a problem. Yeah. And um, technology is unlikely to solve the whole problem or, or you know, if, if, if it does, then we can move on to, to higher level problems. Um, but the job, in my view, the job is there to solve a problem. Yep. And the problem will continue to exist in, in different levels. Um, so the, the faster that we can solve the problem, the better. And that's that's why, yeah, technology and, and, and AI should be embraced um, quickly Absolutely. for that progress to, to come. Sorry? Absolutely. So I was just going to say, I think there's three things that will hopefully happen. So one, some of the drudgery will go away from jobs, but people will be able to do that higher level stuff. Two, you'll be able to augment people's ability to do their jobs. So if you think about um, medical AI that sits alongside a clinician and yeah. provides them with um, possible explanations for the symptoms that they're seeing. It doesn't take away the experience of, of the medical professionals or the clinicians to make a diagnosis, but it draws on the experience of a huge range of people that a single person can't have. Because what we don't want is we don't want to be limited by what you can learn in your lifetime and you can put in your brain. Um, I had a really good example of this in my personal life. I had a, um, a situation where I had a very rare um, problem with one of my eyes. So it's an autoimmune condition where your uh, own body decides that your iris isn't part of you and attacks it. But it's, it's quite, it's, it's not that common. And I was traveling around the world at the time and I went into a hospital in France and they misdiagnosed me. And that <laughs> resulted in me having some permanent scarring on uh, on my cornea. It doesn't matter, it's outside of my field of vision, so it's not a disaster. But it was uncommon. And the, the doctors I was seeing, even though they were in the ophthalmology department of, of the hospital in Nice, hadn't seen it. And so they misdiagnosed it. The next time it flared up, I happened to be in Urumqi in rural China. So in northwest China, or Urumqi is a big city, but you know, it's a remote part of China. The doctor there, because the Chinese population is so large, knew what it was immediately. Even though I was dealing with him through a translator, he understood. And that was because of just the volume of people that he'd seen in his lifetime. So what you want, though, is you want that clinician back in France to have AI have a record of all of the medical databases so that next time somebody like me comes in, they'll be able to suggest that as a possibility and not send me away with a, a misdiagnosis. So that's an example of kind of augmenting people's careers for better outcomes for them and for patients and, and everyone and not being limited by human brains. And I think the third thing that I like to think about in terms of the future of work at AI is the creation of um, new types of jobs that mm. utilize humans in ways that we haven't been able to do before. So as you know, AI and machine learning is only as good as the data you put into it, and that has to be validated. And I think there's going to be a creation of um roles for humans to do validation and that work can be done by people who are remotely distributed who are perhaps older and still wanting to be in the workforce and so there's a real opportunity there to leverage the fact that we've got an aging workforce and still let them do productive work wherever they are um, which i think is really exciting so those are the three sort of things that i think about when i think about the evolution of work and the adoption of technology uh, outstanding outstanding because yeah i i 
totally agree. Like on, on your second point, it's about uh, lifting the, the standard, um, in this case of care, um, but the yep. standard that the, that the work is done and making that higher standard available for everyone to be able to, to consume, keeping the human in the loop, as you say, I think, I think continues to be critical. Um, and and on, on your third point, I think that, that the, um, the capturing of human knowledge in, in data yeah. uh, is going to be critical, um, I think, over the next decade. Um, to to be able to create um, a better AI, AI yep. that's that and, and and AI that reflects or helps us create the world that we want to create, um, because the the problems that, that we've had is that by by taking the data that we have, that data was captured in in a world that um, that might have had some, or that has some some biases that that isn't necessarily the all the Yep. The historical view of the world isn't necessarily the world that we want going forward, um, but the world was like that. It's captured in the data. If we feed that data to the algorithms, the algorithms are going to perpetuate that. The way to fix it is by essentially lay better, better labeling the data. Yep. And that, you know, in a lot of fields that requires really um, expert knowledge to, yep. and working, working alongside with AI um, to say the AI says, hey, I'm getting... I have a bad prediction or a, or a high error rate for this data point. The human reviews it and goes, "Hey, actually, that you got some mislabels here. Let me fix yep. it up. Throw it back into the model." And this is a, an interesting process of, of capturing more of the um, the knowledge worker experience and also provide, help us take to um, create the world that we want going forward with this with these machines. Yeah, 100% agree with you. I think we're going to see the rise, as I said, of data validators. Some of them are going to be specialist data validators for a particular industry, and some of them are just going to be, um, for, particularly for image-based stuff, just people yes. who can see, you know, that's a chihuahua and not a blueberry muffin, which, yeah. <laughs> as you know, is difficult for I machines right now. I love that example. That's great. That's great. And in that space, there's a lot of things I need to... Um, improve that um, in the sense what I mean by that is in the times that I've had projects that needed a lot of labeling of data I sort of thought great I can make some some guidelines and farm it out to a lot of people uh, I might have I might have examples that I get labeled by multiple people and then uh, trying to see if they align um, and if not kind of like escalate um, but I think um, the, the mindset that I had to, that was my original uh, incoming assumption. And then the mindset that I had to develop um, throughout is that it's an iterative process yep. that I was creating guidelines that I thought, like obviously being biased, I thought they were clear and, and great. And then I found that I was getting lots of uh, labels that were different and they were all following these guidelines. And I'm like, well, shit, I got to improve my guidelines so that yep. we have more consistent uh, labels. And I think it's important to, Anyway, go go in with that with that mindset that is it is an iterative, um, an iterative piece of work, and and it's so important uh, for us going forward to yeah to have that that data. I totally agree with that. One of the things that I think is an outcome of that, which people are not really aware of, is how much time you should build into your um, workflow and pipelines exactly to do that iterative process to get a good outcome. So um, I didn't do this work, but I'm aware from astronomy that the optical astronomy community 
had a citizen science project where they wanted to classify things as either spiral galaxies or elliptical galaxies. So just two, two categories. And then they had an other. And for astronomers, that's really simple. That that's not a, a difficult thing, but it turned out when they just, you know, distributed this to huge numbers of people in the general public, um, they had to refine their guidelines again and again and again. And what they discovered was they needed every object to be looked at by 20 different people to be able to be sure um, that the classification would be what an astronomer gave. And that process took many years longer than they thought it would. And so I 100% agree with you, but I think it's a thing that people who are working on AI projects that need that data validation piece need to factor into the timelines of their projects. Yes, yes. And then then a, a hurdle there is how do you develop consensus from different opinions. Yeah. Um, have you seen anything, um, any good ways to, to do that? I think that then comes back to working with the experts of the field. Yeah. So um, certainly for, for astronomy, uh, on the few projects that I've, I've seen, uh, we've gone out to citizen science. We've got stuff which is not consensus, but we've got a triage process where something which comes in from the general public and has a variety of different views gets flagged to be reviewed by an expert but rather than um, just drive from the community consensus. So that's probably the best example. And I think anytime you put humans together, you, you probably have difficulty getting 100% consensus and then you really have to look at what your business outcomes are or your research outcomes and then pick some rules and heuristics based on where you want to get to. But that, I think, is also an interesting field. How do you get humans to... Um, agree to things and in straightforward things like is this a chihuahua or a blueberry muffin easy in things where you've got ethical components that's really difficult and so ethics around ai and setting up heuristics for for ai ethics i think is a really really challenging field and actually i was talking to somebody about this this morning in detail and i don't have good uh thoughts on that myself because that is really difficult so I'm really interested to see how that develops as well. It is. It, it is so difficult. I'm the same. I'm in the same boat as you. Like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough. I, I'm super interested. And I think it's, it's going to be evolving along yeah. with, with societal views. Um, and, and we have to keep questioning it and need to stay, stay on top of it. Um, yeah, because there's some, some really interesting examples like... Um, one of them was the the uh, Apple credit card, which is uh, obviously a famous one that they released yep. with Goldman Sachs, where one of the Apple co-founders, Steve Wozniak, got a credit limit ten times higher than his wife. They said it's discrimination. Yep. Um, then the Department of Justice they did an inquiry into it, and they decided that it was not discrimination, um, and it was because they said, "Oh well, um, the, the the in this case, the the husband was the breadwinner, so he should have a higher limit." And then it's like, well, should he? Like, is, that, he? Yeah. Is, that the, is that the world that we want? And I think this, these are the, the type of conversations that we that AI is helping us, almost forcing us to have, which are yep. so, so important, so critical for us. Well, the other thing associated with that is that the legal system is slow to move. And so we are in the regime where um, the laws that we have and legislation is often falling behind what the technology Mm. Um, is able to do. And so there's a real impetus, I think, for legislators to have a better understanding of what technology can do and what technology is already out there. 
um, a recent case that was alerted to me was um, facial recognition capture. So, yeah. yeah, so there are, you know, your face print is actually a piece of your personal data, which is potentially very valuable. Like the, my bank uses it to open my um, app on my phone to be able to access my bank records. But when you go into um, particular stores like Bunnings, for example, they do have a notice that says they're capturing those kind of um, images. What are the privacy implications of that? The legislation doesn't say. And so those are things which also need to evolve alongside our adoption of technology and perhaps a little bit faster than they currently are. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, so interesting. So interesting. Um, no, I love it. I love it. And um, what... Um, what type of projects have you guys been been um, working on or, or deploying where where you you're saying um, well if you can tell us I was going to ask whether you see lower <laughs> yeah. slower than um, slower than expected adoption in, in some of some of those um, and then how do how do your your three areas apply to to these? It's a really interesting question. Um, I think probably the most frustrating thing in the field of data science is where a client will come in, they'll have a brief where they want something to be to be done, and we will help them sort of shorten their process pipeline using AI or machine learning. The part of the business that we'll be dealing with um, is really happy with that, and then they take it back into corporate, and corporate goes no for regulatory reasons or um, human reasons. I'm trying to think of examples I can actually talk about. <laughs> um, like in, in, the, in the meantime, like I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one around um, a lack, lack of adoption where, um, uh, so I work in healthcare, um, yep. AI for healthcare, and um, we uh, have a client where we were getting um, uh, data for people that were going to the hospital yep. and we would score them on how, how much, um, benefit it would be to their health and to this company's um, financials, how beneficial it would be to give them additional support after their procedure. Um, yep. And and then we would send these, uh, and uh, the data that we got was all anonymized, de-identified. So it was just on the on the clinical outcomes, essentially, clinical information. Yep. And then we would send that back to the, to the customer to say, here's the ranked uh, list of people every day. And they, um, they would call them up and, and offer them that extra support that was for free for them. Um, and they, we started this, you know, more than two years ago. Um, and about a year into it, I found out that they were not using the ranking at all. Well. And just calling me by random. And I was like, well, why? And they're like, oh, you know, just our systems can't handle it. Yeah, um, so frustrating. And, and like from then, it took a year to get the change. Yeah. The, the, people, the, the people on board, the change management to get the technology uh, changes to the, the features, to the auto dialer, et cetera. Another year for the, the calls to be ranked and for people that will get better health outcomes from the support to, for them to be called multiple times. And I was like, this yeah. should not have taken two years. <laughs> To, to get there. Uh, well, I mean, you work in the health field, so you you know that in addition to the human factors of of change and adoption, you've also got these privacy and regulatory things. And um, one of the frustrations for us in working with healthcare data is that it's siloed 
and you you can't necessarily, for good reasons in yeah. many cases, um, take data out of a silo. So we have to send our data scientists outside of our facility into um, the healthcare facilities to work directly with the data. So they're trying to sort of develop models um, on our systems, which they don't have the real, they have to use dummy data and then they have to go in and um, use the, the facilities on site, which are often not set up and um, often require a lot of permissions. So we get sort of a bottleneck there. And then we find out that they can't adopt our, our um, ML systems so or AI. So Yes. So you'll do a project. We, we did an amazing project on um, a stillbirth risk register. Oh, wow. And uh, that, as far as I know, has not been implemented, even though we did that work two or three years ago. So, wow. it, it, yeah, wow. there's so many things we could have. Exactly. But yes, but, but we don't because of, of these human factors. So either the legislation's not in place or people are... Um, unwilling to go through the change process in the organization to do something that can, you know, yes. cause a change or, or people don't want to learn new stuff. I mean, I see this barrier all the time, you know, plasticity of human brains decreases as we age. And so where young people are really interested in adopting new technologies and so forth, older people are not. And so when you're dealing with an older workforce, they really don't want a new piece of software or a new process even. And so I think that also is a slow process. So you can have these things be created, but then just adoption stalls. And that's a human factor. That's a biological human factor. Correct. Um, Correct. Yeah. And like um, I've noticed myself like getting um, like too, too frustrated um, when like I'm not getting software to work uh, the way that I want. And I'm like, like I shouldn't be this this frustrated. Like, not that I'm like I don't know. I'm not I'm not kicking a door down or anything like that. But but for the for the scale of the problem, I was I was way too frustrated uh, relative to that. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting old. I need to work on this. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a funny thing. Um, so I I myself have this thing where I don't really want to learn how to reprocess uh, astronomy data, radio astronomy data, which I you know notionally an expert in. But we've got new software now. I'll still go back and use the old software um, to, to reduce the data, although at least I will use new processes. I was going to say one of the really frustrating um, examples for me of technology not being um, imported into a workflow was I worked very closely with uh, one of my former students for many years on new algorithm design for processing radio astronomy data. And we found that there'd been an error in the way that we'd processed a particular type of data globally for 40 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all the results in the literature um, were not necessarily wrong, but they were only valid on high signal-to-noise, uh, whereas if you fix this, you could go down and do stuff on low signal-to-noise. So this opens up a, a really interesting field. And the correction was really, really simple. It was three lines of code that needed to be changed in most of our processing packages. And... I think I got it changed in about two out of the 10 or so different processing packages. And despite the fact that we had new telescopes coming on board for which they were writing the new software, and I was going to these people and saying, look, this is wrong. Can you implement this particular process? It didn't happen. So oh, we've built new instruments, multi-million dollar instruments that are still using a process which is known to be wrong. Um, because that was easier to take this legacy software and to just adapt it. And I, uh, that, that is probably personally the most frustrating example 
um, for me. So for sure, for sure. Oh, that is only three lines. That is three lines of code that need to be changed. And the impact is massive. And the impact, yeah. So instead of having to be, we had all these sort of weird things in the literature said you had to have a signal to noise above seven for the um, results to be valid. Well, you can drop it down to three, the standard three, if you do what what you should do, and it's still not done. So. Ah. Oh, no, no. Oh, that, that, yeah, that is very, very tough. Yep. And we did that work in 2016. So, yeah. No, no. Um, and so what, um, I guess, what, what do you, what do you make of all these examples and, and what, what, what do you recommend as a, as a way forward or, or things that people can, can implement? So I, I think from my perspective now, it's really important to touch base um, with the human side of these things. So uh, even if people are coming from the technology perspective, you need to have an understanding of the humans that are going to be using the technology um, and are going to be um, benefit from the technology because those two things are what creates these barriers. And so what I would like to see is when data scientists start to work on processes with clients and so forth, we don't just ask the technology questions. We don't just ask, you know, what's the scope of the project? What are you trying to achieve, et cetera, from a, a process point of view. We ask the questions, who's going to use this? What are, can we talk to them? What are their experiences? What are their limitations? Because I don't think there's any point in spending effort on creating new solutions and new technologies, which are then not um, uptaken. So I think that's probably the best advice that I can give. And so we've tried to start to do that recently where I've tried to kind of go, well, how can we make sure this actually gets into production? What extra steps in this project does the client need to think about? in order to have that uptake and what extra steps do we need to put in to make it easier for you to adopt. And the other thing that I've been asked to do in the last 18 months is to talk to executives about um, data science and machine learning and AI and how they can transform business and to allow them to understand that it has to be a, a whole of operations process. There's no point doing a small piece and then discovering that the people who run your um, operations processes are not interested in, in uptaking new technologies. And so I think those two things allow organizations from the top down to get an overview of where they need to put resources across the whole process rather than see it in little siloed or, um, pieces and to allow the data scientists themselves to start asking those other questions of how can I make this easy? I love it. I love it. Those are excellent, excellent, excellent tips. Uh, um, yeah, just just the other day, somebody was asking me like, what what um, kind of like what I wish executives knew about data science, and like it's it's this, like it's it's exactly this. Yeah. Oh. yeah so I think if we can talk to executives more, so that they know this stuff, any any organization that wants to let um, technologists and data scientists talk to their executives, big thumbs up. Please do that. Yes. It's good for you. It's good for us. Helps the world change. Exactly. Ah, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think that is a wonderful note to end on. Bring in the human element earlier. And when you're from an exec perspective, deploying AI is a whole business endeavor, not localized AI department efforts. Yeah. So 
Melanie, I want to thank you so much for sharing some of your knowledge, experience, your insights. They are absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Oh, thank you, Felipe, for the invitation and the fantastic conversation. It's been fantastic and my great pleasure. Time. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.